History Courses presents From Settlement to Superpower, The Spanish Century. Episode 1 Rivers of Gold World history travels from east to west, Hegel famously taught in the 19th century. And indeed, from the vantage point of Western civilization, this certainly appears to be the case. From the cradle of civilization in the floodplains of the Levant to the philosophical schools of Athens and the birth of democracy, from Rome's might and grandeur to the power of the early modern empires of Western Europe, the mantle of global power seems to travel ever westward. And indeed, the 20th century saw that mantle pass westward over the sea, to the new world rising to supplant the old. Ironically, though, it was not Europe gazing westward that planted the first seeds of European civilization in America. Rather, the new world was birthed from Europe turning eastward, to the far-off lands of the Orient. For the entirety of the medieval era, Europeans were dependent on the East for the lion's share of their luxuries. For starters, there was silk, which you were pretty much only able to get from China. For over a thousand years, the silkworm was China's most jealously guarded secret, so much so that the Chinese emperors would execute anybody who even attempted to export silkworms or the secrets of sericulture. Eventually, however, Europeans managed to smuggle out the silkworm. The Byzantine historian Procopius tells us how this was accomplished when two Nestorian monks in the service of the Emperor Justinian hid some silkworm eggs in the hollows of their bamboo staffs. From Byzantium, knowledge of sericulture spread throughout the Mediterranean world. However, despite the Chinese loss of their total monopoly on the silk trade, they still were the most important source for European silks, both in terms of quantity and quality. China was also the source of musk, jade, and porcelain, which is, until this very day, known to us as China. To the south of China, you had the Malay archipelago, particularly the Spice Islands or the Moluccas, which were the only source of a number of expensive spices and perfumes. These included nutmeg, mace, cloves, and camphor. Further to the west, you had India and its fabled riches itself, the land of diamonds, rubies, sapphires, and emeralds, of pepper and ginger, of cinnamon, pearls, and fragrant woods. Persia and Iraq were the source of rugs, sugar, and opium, while Arabia yielded frankincense and myrrh. In short, while Europe was economically self-sufficient insofar as the basics, such as grain and wool, were concerned, it was still entirely reliant on the Near and Far East for its luxuries. There were three basic trade routes by which Eastern goods would arrive at Western markets, collectively referred to as the Silk Road. Of course, these trade routes were hardly static or fixed, and particular legs of each route were constantly shifting and changing in response to world events, 
But nonetheless, these three roots retained, in some form or another, a certain fixity of course until the mid-15th century. The southernmost of these trade routes was almost entirely by sea. Chinese, Japanese, and Malay traders would gather goods along the Chinese coast and Spice Islands from where they would head towards the ancient city of Malacca, along the coast of what is now Peninsular Malaysia. Malacca was perhaps the Orient's foremost commercial entrepot during the Middle Ages, and it was here that Chinese, Malay, Indian, Persian, and Arab merchants would converge to trade their wares. From Malacca, the Arabs and Indians would transport the eastern goods up to India's Malabar coast, where a new bout of trading would ensue. From there, the Arabs would bring their merchandise to the western coast of the Red Sea, from where they would ferry their goods by boat along the Nile and then overland by caravan to Alexandria, where the goods would enter what we're going to refer to as the European market. The European market was dominated by its central conduit, the Mediterranean, which was itself dominated by the Italians, primarily the two great rival republics, Venice and Genoa. Indeed, the story of the medieval Mediterranean trade is largely the story of these two republics' bitter feuds. Each of them attempted to outtrade the other by means of colonizing various Mediterranean islands and cities, purchasing monopolies from various coastal cities, and engaging in intermittent trade and open wars. The Venetian and Genoese trade empires were extensive, and they had autonomous colonies everywhere, from Alexandria to Constantinople, from Palestine to the Crimea. The second trade route from the Orient began in the same way as the first, but split off from it in India. Instead of the wares being transferred by sea to the Red Sea, they would instead be brought to the Persian Gulf port city of Ormuz, where they would travel a web of interconnected trade routes westward, passing through cities such as Tabriz, Baghdad, Mosul, Damascus, and Aleppo, before splitting in two, with the southern route culminating on the Mediterranean coast in the coastal cities of Beirut and Jaffa, and the northern route running through Anatolia before culminating in Constantinople. The third trade route, far to the north of the two routes we've previously mentioned, was the overland route. This route ran overland through the vast Chinese interior, across the Gobi Desert and the fast steppes of Central Asia, stopping at cities such as Samarkand, Merv, Tashkent, and Bukhara, before splitting into two. The southern route would run down and join the Persian route beginning at Hormuz, while the northern route would continue onwards to the north, where it would end in the Crimea and at the mouth of the River Don. These trade routes were perilous, beset as they were by storm and typhoon, pirates, bandits, and marauding tribesmen. The commodities would trade hands up to tens of times, and each time, the items would rise in price a process only exacerbated by trade imposts, poll taxes, and port fees, which they would encounter along the way. In short, European commerce with the East was unstable, risky, and exorbitantly expensive, and yet it continued at full steam. The golden age of the Silk Road was during the 13th century, 
when the Mongols solidified their control over vast swaths of Asia, from the bustling cities of China to the erstwhile centers of learning in the Near East, from the frozen wastes of Siberia to the shores of the Black Sea. The Mongols were keen to foster trade between the East and West, and moreover they had no religious quarrel with the Christians. The remarkable unification of much of Eurasia under the Mongols allowed for such epic adventures as the journeys of Marco Polo, and it was said at the time, with perhaps some exaggeration, that a merchant could travel from Italy to Beijing on a road, quote, safe by day or night. Over the course of the 14th century, however, this Mongol hegemony began to fracture and disintegrate. By 1368, the Chinese had rebelled and expelled the Mongols. The new Chinese dynasty, the Ming, pursued a policy of extreme isolationism and significantly curtailed foreign trade. The Mongol empires of the steppe were also significantly weakened during this time, and infighting and banditry began to increasingly render the Silk Road perilous. The rise of the Mamluks of Egypt similarly threw the Levant into violent chaos, all to the detriment of regular trade with the Orient. And finally, during the first half of the 15th century, a new menace emerged, one which threatened to completely sever the already tenuous trade links between East and West. This menace was the Ottoman Turks. The Ottomans, a Turkish tribal conglomerate which derives its name from its founder, Osman, had been steadily expanding and had by this time overrun most of Anatolia. In 1453, the Ottomans finally took Constantinople, massacring the Venetians and Genoese who had joined in the defense of the hapless city. All of the old privileges and trading rights granted by the Byzantines were cancelled, and heavy restrictions were now laid upon the Italian traders. Over the next 50 years, things got progressively worse for the Italians. The Ottoman Turks expanded steadily in all directions, and in the course of a 16-year war bloodily subjugated the Venetian and Genoese colonies in Greece, the Aegean, Crete, and Crimea. The Bosporus and Dardanelles were now closed to all shipping but those who would pay heavy tribute, and the once dominant Italian republics entered a state of eclipse from which they would never truly emerge. The final nail in the Silk Road's coffin came in 1517, when the Ottomans conquered the Mamluk lands to the south, including Syria, Palestine, and eventually Egypt. This, combined with growing unrest between the various Tartar tribes in Central Asia, completely blocked off all the traditional avenues of trade. The Silk Road was dead. Now, we shouldn't come off all this thinking that the Turks established a total moratorium on all trade with the West. On the contrary, a number of Italian cities who didn't have colonies in the East, such as Florence, Pisa, and Ancona, were doing quite a bit of business with the Ottomans, and even the Venetians were allowed to conduct some trade, albeit on a much reduced level. Nonetheless, the early Ottoman stance was fundamentally indisposed towards trade, and the once steady flow of goods through Ottoman lands decreased dramatically. 
But even though the supply of Eastern luxuries was drying up, the demand in the West was hardly decreasing. On the contrary, such demand was growing by leaps and bounds, primarily driven by the decline in serfdom in Europe following the horrific depopulation of the Black Death. A third of Europe's population had died from the plague, which meant that workers were no longer cheap. This essentially spelled the death of feudalism, as the combination of rising wages and the falling cost of land allowed for an unprecedented degree of social mobility. Thus, peasants who had formerly lived at the very edge of subsistence were now in many instances able to better their lot and redeem themselves financially. The burghers and the merchants as well were carried upwards by this rising tide of wealth and commerce. The prosperity this brought about increased the European desire for Eastern luxuries, at precisely the same time as the volume of goods transported along the Silk Road was declining. So, what were the Europeans to do? How are they supposed to gain access to these markets of the East? The solution to that problem was the key to the Age of Discovery. They would need to find another route to the East, bypassing the Islamic Turks. This burning desire to find an alternate route to the Indies would be the impetus for virtually all the voyages of discovery of the next two centuries. At first, those voyages would be solely attempts to round Africa and to so open up a direct trade route with India, but eventually, the Spanish would take a desperate crack at opening a westward route to the Indies, and would instead stumble upon an entire new world to explore, exploit, tame, and conquer. But this goal of opening up a direct sea route to India was an extremely ambitious goal, which only became even remotely feasible as the result of a great many earlier adventurers and explorers, most of whom were motivated by somewhat less ambitious goals. The remainder of this episode is going to focus on the objective of these earlier mariners who, unbeknownst to them, laid the foundation for the Age of Discovery. Although, as we're going to see, some of these early adventurers did indeed hope to round Africa and open a direct sea route to India, most of them were animated by the rather less daunting goal of finding the source of the Trans-Saharan gold trade. Ever since ancient times, the region south of the Sahara was known to be rich in gold. Herodotus tells us of Carthaginian voyages past the pillars of Hercules to a land rich in gold, and I'm going to quote his description of the gold trade here, because we're going to see soon that his account of the gold trade is actually corroborated by medieval accounts as well. Quote, the Carthaginians also relate the following. There is a country in Libya and a nation far beyond the pillars of Hercules, which they are wont to visit, where they no sooner arrive but forthwith they unload their wares, and having disposed them after an orderly fashion along the beach, leave them, and returning aboard their ships, raise a great smoke. The natives, when they see the smoke, come down to the shore, and laying out to view so much gold as they think the worth of the wares, withdraw to a distance. The Carthaginians upon this come ashore and look. If they think the gold enough, they take it and go their way, but if it does not seem to them sufficient, 
They go aboard the ship once more and wait patiently. Then the others approach and add their gold till the Carthaginians are content. Neither party deals unfairly by the other, for they themselves never touch the gold till it comes up to the worth of their goods, nor do the natives ever carry off the goods till the gold is taken away. End quote. With the destruction of the Carthaginian Empire, the naval trade route fell into abeyance. Although the Romans continued to trade with the interior for Carbuncle, the middlemen who conveyed these goods to the Romans were the Garamantes, a powerful desert civilization situated in the Fezzan, in what is now southern Libya. The trans-Saharan gold trade, which had been a mere trickle under the Romans, grew by leaps and bounds following the Muslim conquest of the Maghreb. The Moroccan city of Sijil Massa, located right on the border of the Sahara Desert, soon became an entrepot for Arab traders who carried on a brisk trade in the gold market. The chief trading power of the merchants of Sijil Massa during the early Middle Ages was the Ghana Empire, or Wagadu. The Ghana Empire was not situated in what we know today as Ghana, but rather farther to the north, in eastern Mauritania and western Mali. The Ghana Empire was centered around the city of Kumbi, which is modern Kumbi Sala in Mauritania, and stretched all the way to the banks of the Senegal River. Ghana was situated to the north of the gold fields of western Africa, and they were the first stop for the precious metals on their long journey northward. This fortuitous positioning made Ghana fabulously wealthy. As a matter of fact, there was so much gold coming in that the Ghanaians had to strictly control the flow of the gold from the south in order to prevent the price of gold from crashing. The Ghanaians largely accomplished this by declaring all gold nuggets crown property, restricting the gold trade exclusively to gold powder. The precise location of the gold fields was a carefully kept secret. All the Ghanaians knew was that the gold came from a land south of the Senegal known as Wangara. That was all. The Wangarans remained silent regarding the source of their gold, literally. We know this because we have multiple medieval sources which describe the Wangaran trade with the Ghanaians exactly as Herodotus had described the Carthaginian gold trade 2,000 years earlier in which the Wangarans would silently appear and lay out what gold they were willing to trade in exchange for the goods preferred by the Ghanaian merchants. This corroborates Herodotus' account of the silent trade and adds a great deal of weight to his description of the Carthaginian gold trade. The Wangarans generally traded their gold for salt, which they valued as much as the merchants they traded with valued gold. As a matter of fact, on one occasion, the merchants in Ghana kidnapped one of the Wangarans and tried to force him to tell them where the gold fields were, but the captive simply refused to speak, eat, or drink, and died a few days later. The Wangarans didn't return to the Senegal for a long time after that breach of trust, and it was only an acute need for salt which compelled them to return after three years. After the Ghana Empire was destroyed by the Almoravids, its place as middleman was taken by the Empire of Mali, which reached the height of its power in the early 14th century. Mansa Musa, the most famous ruler of Mali, 
made a celebrated Hajj to Mecca, during which he was accompanied by a retinue of tens of thousands of men, each clothed in the finest silk and brocade, as well as twelve thousand slaves, each bearing a gold nugget weighing four pounds. Musa also traveled with eighty camels laden with gold powder, which he distributed lavishly to the poor all along his route. Mansa Musa's extravagance was such that he single-handedly caused a severe dip in the price of gold throughout the Islamic world. For much of the Middle Ages, however, Europeans knew very little about the nature of the trans-Saharan gold trade. The first cartographic evidence we have of Europeans noting the sub-Saharan kingdoms is the Giovanni da Carignano portolan map from the early 14th century. A portolan map is a map made for the primary purpose of nautical navigation, hence the name portolan, or pertaining to ports. So we have Giovanni da Carignano's portolan map. We don't know exactly when it was created, but most likely, as I've said earlier, in the early 14th century. Sadly, this map was destroyed during the Allied bombing of Naples in 1943. So all we have are some old photographs and notes to tell us about the map. Uh, there is a photograph of this uh, map included in uh, the supplementary materials for this episode, which you can find on historycourses.com. In any event, Carniano's map depicts the trans-Saharan gold trade as well as Guinea, which came to be the term Europeans used for all of sub-Saharan Africa. In Guinea, Carignano placed a river which runs clear through Africa from the Nile to the Atlantic, which he calls the Western Nile. In the middle of this Western Nile is a large island which Carignano calls the Insula Palola, which is supposedly the source of the West African gold. The idea that the Wangaran gold came from a large island was not a new one. It was frequently repeated by earlier Islamic geographers, and the legend of the island of gold was likely based on the delta of the Niger River. This geographical conception was repeated a short time later in the celebrated 1375 Catalan Atlas of Crescus Abraham, a Jewish cartographer living on the island of Majorca. This atlas is one of the most comprehensive maps of the Middle Ages, and is considered to be the very peak of medieval cartography. In the Catalan atlas, Crescus does not show the mouth of the Western Nile, or as he called it, the River of Gold, but at the very bottom of the map, one can see the great river flowing across the African continent. Crescus doesn't say much about the river itself. What Crescus does elaborate on, however, is the wealth of the Empire of Mali, which lay right to the north of the great river of gold. Crescus depicts Mansa Musa, or Musa Meli as he referred to him, seated on a throne, wielding a scepter and a large nugget of gold. Reference, perhaps, to the famous giant nugget of gold that the Empire of Mali inherited from its Ghanaian predecessor. According to Muhammad al-Idrisi, a medieval Islamic geographer, this nugget was large enough for the king to tether his horse to, while Ibn Khaldun, a later historian, 
reported the nugget to weigh a ton. By the way, I did put an image of the relevant portion of the Crescus map on historycourses.com. So, of course, if you want to go see it, you can go to historycourses.com, sign up for a membership. That's there. Uh, I also have a photograph, a black and white photograph of the Carignano Portolan. Uh, so you can see that as well. In any event, from Crescus's work, this river of gold, or Rio de Oro, entered into the mainstream European consciousness. The Book of Knowledge of All the Kingdoms of the World, a Castilian geography from the late 14th century in the form of a fictitious travelogue, gave fantastic descriptions of this river of gold, while other cartographers began to mark it on their maps with descriptions of the width of the river's mouth and its navigability. The idea that this river of gold was accessible by way of the Atlantic tantalized European geographers and explorers, and more than the very distant idea of opening a direct sea route with India, it was the possibility of discovering the source of Africa's gold that motivated the earlier waves of explorers. In our next episode, we're going to look at some of those early forgotten explorers and their stories. Thank you.